Hey, Greg. Hey, Andrew. How's it going? Um, it's been a weird week. <laughs> it has. Yeah, we we had a caucus and th- then didn't. Um, and uh, and 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 they the president's just allowed to do crimes now, so it's been weird. But we talked about that. Yeah, for an Got hour before this podcast. Uh, I have something I want to bring up to you that I think you find interesting. Okay. So I received an envelope in the mail yesterday from uh, Nielsen. Oh, Nielsen Scarborough. Oh, did you? Yeah. Uh, and I thought instantly thought of you. Uh-huh. Uh, in it was a dollar bill. Uh-huh. And then a little, you know, survey around television and radio habits. Uh-huh. Music habits. It was You're like being... the most... It was like the four of the most like generic question, generic questions possible. Just like, you know, what kind of television do you watch? Uh huh. Drama, comedy, none of the above. Uh huh. <laughs> what kind of, you know, how do you consume your music? Like, you know, radio and like things that were kind of like just sounded like someone made this survey like 30 years ago and we're like, the internet's a thing, right? Like maybe should we include that in the survey? Yeah, throw it in there. Uh, it also, but you know, it was interesting. Like I got that, the dollar bill fell out of the envelope. And I'm like, is that a real dollar? Yeah. It you're was. Being, you're being screened. And then they said, if you send this thing back in, we'll send you five more dollars. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, well, I was going to do it anyway, because I think this stuff's interesting. Also, I want my voice to be heard in a market <laughs> research company about entertainment. Okay. It's almost like we have a podcast about it or something. Uh-huh. And also, I'm a professional <laughs> market researcher. <laughs> right. So I just wanted to get your uh, get your vibe on that. So you're being you're you're, you're getting into the screener process. OK. Um, so the next thing you'll get will be a even more detailed survey like the one you took um, to make sure that you are the kind of candidate that they're looking for um, based on um, they're probably not looking for demographic quotas. Well, they did um, say, are you a male between 18 and 30? Are you the youngest male between 18 and 34 in your household? That was like who, who is targeted at. Mm hmm. Uh, yeah. So it could be for any um, any number of things. Um, they uh, it could be for any number of of media panels they do. Um, but uh, it might be a, a pen and paper fucking diary of what you watch on television like they still do a lot of their work that way Um, i mean it seems cool i mean is that a typical strategy to like just put money in it um like currency like this is so bizarre to me i mean it works right yeah i mean i thought it was serious you ever get those like you know fake fake currency things from like car dealerships or whatever where it's like it looks like it's a hundred dollar bill and you get close and it's like the, like, you know, the dude from the dealership's face or like a car or something. You're like, ah, shit, you got me. This is like, no, this is actual money. So, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I would have done it regardless because I, you know, like I said, want my voice to be heard in the statistics on these uh, on the on the entertainments. But uh, six extra dollars. Yeah, you know, that's a beer. That's cool. That's or it's it's six beers. If you drink the kind of beer I drink. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's I mean. I mean, for somebody like Nielsen, who's just trying to get like the biggest, thickest nationwide panel that they can get, like, yeah, they're just going to send out, you know, um, send it out to as many warm bodies as they think are going to match their, you know, their targets. And yeah, like throw a dollar in there um, because the rate of return is probably much better with that rather than um, I send you this thing and I say, if you're selected to participate, you could be entered to win a gift card for $50, you know, right versus like. Here's a dollar to fill this out and then we'll send you five more. And like you already have the dollar. 
Um, yeah, it's effective. My only concern is that I feel like I might have messed up the one question because one question was like, you know, what genre, like what genre of television do you typically watch the most? Check all that apply. And there was like the options were like sports, drama, comedy and news and then none of the above. And I checked comedy, drama and none of the above because I was trying to imply like the thing I watch most is not any of these, which is mm. genre of television, which I guess you could maybe probably lump under. Yeah, it's a bad question. You think they'd have other please explain. But um, really, if if I'm if they're doing it the way I think they're doing it, they're just making sure you watch something. They yeah. don't really care what those say. And it could be that by checking none of the above, you have screwed yourself because they might just be scanning for people who don't say none of the above. Damn. Because um, it was yeah. pen and paper, wasn't it? Yeah, it was pen and paper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, maybe they'll maybe their skip logic will have you, you know, will still count you in. But they just want to make sure that um, you're like watching TV, watching TV, not just like some weirdo who, you know, like turns on like the TV guide channel because they like the music, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or the weather channel because they like the music. Yeah. Uh, OK. Interesting. I just wanted to get your perspective because I was like, yeah. this is, this is kind of what Greg does. Uh, yeah, well, I, uh, it's kind of what I do. Um, I mean, I pay Nielsen for, for some of their stuff. Um, but yeah, yeah. Not their TV stuff though. Yeah. We pay somebody else for that. Well, it's interesting anyway. So anything else new before we jump into our topic tonight? No, let's talk about our topic. Okay, cool. Uh, awesome. So unlike the Iowa caucus, we're talking about endings tonight. Yes. Yes, we are. Um, and I guess I've been thinking about this as we've been planning this episode. And I feel like I need to say it. It's probably dumb, but like we're doing an episode about endings, but this isn't some poetic way of us saying the podcast is over. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I felt like I needed to say that, but I did feel like I needed to say it. So I said it. No, I mean, you're all stuck with us. Yeah, we got nothing better to do, man. Seriously. Uh, so yeah, so I this has been kind of percolating my mind because we talked about, you know, it both throughout the year, but also in our most recent episode about, um, you know, the year in review or second most recent episode, uh, we talked about how this was a year of endings uh, in a lot of ways, new beginnings uh, with the end of Game of Thrones TV television show with the end of quote unquote, there's a totally real thing, the Skywalker saga in um, Rise of Skywalker, as well as uh, what else ended? Other things ended. Uh, the Marvel movies. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, the kind of big, this big, Transition for the Marvel movie. Obviously, we're getting more, um, which more and more. Did you see any of the the initial preview for the Super Bowl for the MCU shows on Disney Plus? Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't much there, but no, right. yes, seems cool. Looks like what I expected. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, WandaVision looks weird and fun. Yeah, we'll see how many episodes to get out of it, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so you know, a lot of things are, are are transitioning, and it got me thinking, like, what? And we had some pretty bad examples of endings this past year and i got thinking about we touched briefly on it before what makes a good ending why do endings matter how do endings work so that's what we're doing let's yes 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 let's get into it so the first question i posed and greg i have to apologize you did a lot of the heavy lifting with this today because it's been a weird busy off-kilter week for me and i just didn't have it in me so but i'm ready to go now okay so i said what's in an ending um so I think in like pedantic definition of terms kind of way, like it's a part of a narrative, a story where it, it's this convergence of the narrative itself. So the plot, 
the story, the themes uh, that the, the story has, um, and style elements. So you've got this convergence of the narrative, the themes, the styles, all happening with the, you know, kind of real life conclusion of the work you know when you start running out of pages at the end of the book or running out of minutes in the movie um and beyond this the this point right this convergence of plot points and theme and style and the actual runtime of the thing you assume that beyond this there will be no direct continuation right the ending is really like the end of this story there might be another story later that picks up on this but this is the this is the obvious conclusion right we're saying boom done end um and and i think that that knowledge that there is no nothing beyond it right um is part of it like there's a difference between the end of an episode of a sitcom and the end of a sitcom right right um and that that is part of what makes it an ending is an assumption with the audience that there won't be another episode next week. There is no chapter after this one. Um, you know, uh, after this scene, the credits are going to roll on this movie. You know, it, that that's a part of it. And, and a, a agreement with the audience of like, yep, we're we're through here. Right. And I think that you know, brought up a good point. There's sort of like there's endings within endings, right? You have component pieces. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about television, you have the end of an episode, you have the end of a season, and then you have, you know, maybe the end of a show in general. Mm-hmm. And each of those things serves a different purpose. Obviously, we'll be focusing on more of the latter two, you know, and I think that it's an interesting time because how episodes of television are constructed and end are very different than they were. 10 or 20 or 30 years ago in mm-hmm. general, because the way we consume those things and engage with these things has changed dramatically, as we talked about in our television episode, that, you know, where before you really need to have that tight arc for that 20 minute or 43 minute show or whatever, and, you know, be able to just to run that. And when everybody's trying to catches it, it's fine. Well, now it's like, well, you kind of can just tell one long story and some shows still t- stick to a relative, like each episode kind of has a rhythm you know, and you can kind of end it, expect it to end a certain way, or sometimes it just doesn't and it just goes. Yeah. And that's, yeah. A, you know, sometimes that's bad. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's, you know, that's, a, that can be an executional issue, paying the context and, or it could be a bad fit for someone who's consuming a show in a certain way. I think that what comes, what becomes really bad is we have the conflation of like, as premier television has moved more in that direction of, you know, serialized storytelling and, not really having distinct endpoints within a season or within a series, but they still air it on a weekly basis or something along those lines, then you have sort of a, a mismatch that can that can cause issues and feel like pacing issues and things like that. Yeah, I have noticed that in a lot of especially yeah, like the premier prestige television shows where there are some episodes that feel like obviously it's got more before it and more will come after it, but it really feels self-contained like the 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 episode itself has an arc. It it um, sets up a bunch of stuff within it, and then it pays that stuff off. And it is self-contained in that way, right? It's it's. Um, and then there are those other episodes where it's just like it doesn't really have an arc. It doesn't really have its own like dramatic build up. It just kind of is and. You get a lot of those, and I find them kind of frustrating because I feel like in this glorious new future where you have 
you're no longer limited to like it's got to be 43 minutes and every uh, and every nine minutes you have to have a convenient break for us to put ads in Um, like rather than doing like, well, we've got these two episodes that kind of have an arc um, and they're each 43 minutes. So we're going to do them, but they're both going to be weirdly paced and not really make sense on their own. Um, And that's just the way it's going to be, because for whatever reason, we're sticking with this 43 minute format rather than just saying like, well, most of the episodes are like 45 minutes. This one's more like an hour 10 just because we had a lot to fit into it. Um, I find that frustrating. Um, I will say that Watchmen did an excellent job of of this, of having each episode really feel like a complete unit within the whole with its own stylistic touches, its own internal story and arc and themes. Um, I think it, it really did an excellent job of that um, uh, as, a, as a positive example. I will say The Witcher, which we, you know, had, had great praise for last week, um, you know, falls into the former trap a little bit more where it's like it really just feels like a six hour long movie that you're watching in chunks. Yeah, especially the latter half. The first yeah. half had a little bit more of that, like jumping around a bit. But yes. Yeah. Like Betrayer Moon is a good example of like this is a this this episode is, you know, tight. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, It's got its own internal story and its own uh, themes. And then you have other episodes where it's just like, all right, I guess we're just watching the long movie. Yeah. That's one thing I've been talked about last week. Been, you know, watching The Expanse. I'm now into the fourth season, which is the first the first one on Amazon uh, and they do something a little different, which is I'm not sure if it aired this way, but the mostly in the second and third season, it almost kind of operates on half seasons. And I know some some television shows do that where, you know, I know Walking Dead is very big into that where like the midseason finale is a really big deal and each one kind of functions almost independently. And sometimes actually to like it's a weird thing. I think that's one step away from like in this modern age of the changing structure of television, like almost like moving away from seasons. Right. And maybe mm-hmm. just having like where maybe the seasons don't necessarily line up with the arcs of especially a lot of television is adaptations now. So an example of the expanse, like the second season, something happens in the middle of that season. It's just like, holy shit. Like what just like, and then I found out later that that it, that's the climax of the second book happens at the middle of that season and then the third book is the second half of that season so i think that as the endings of a season and the ending of arcs aren't always aligning any longer and i wonder if i mean we're never going to move away from television seasons because that's just how i don't think at least anytime soon we're going to see a breakup of like the infrastructure surrounding how television is filmed but there's a you can make an argument for it i mean i think you're right like there's certain economics involved in shooting a certain quantity of episodes all at once and then shutting the production down for a couple months and then doing it again makes more sense than to shoot three episodes at a time, Um, which I think you're right that, you know, you kind of have to do it that way. But the way things are released and the way things are consumed could be different. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, the BBC does miniseries. Like, again, I, I, I watched the end of that Dracula thing, which, uh, yikes. Um, but yeah, that's like three episodes and they're each like 90 minutes long. Mm-hmm. So like, is that a TV show? Is that a, is that three short movies? Is that, what are we doing? Right. Um, so yeah, I just feel like there's, there's clearly some value in keeping certain structures of the old model in place. 
But I feel like when, you know, being slavish to that format, if you end up having to, like, make compromises in your storytelling just because you're trying to fit some weird episode length or episode count situation, like, eh, fuck that. Right. Because that can, you know, uh, because that can impact the ending, right? Like, how we lead up to the ending is part of the ending. We'll get there. But Mm -hmm. I'm going to posit that I think, you know, arguably the ending is the most important part of a story, right? Um, I, yeah, I, I, well, yes. Depends on the context, I'd say, but. It's, well, it's kind of, it's where everything comes together. And it is generally, like, the thing you walk away from the story from, like, thinking about and remembering, right? It is the, um, oh man, and I'm going to quote that shitty Dracula show. Um... (laughs) It is the mountaintop from which you can view the entire story and consider it, right? Mm. Um, So it's important in that regard. But also, the quality of the ending is absolutely dependent on the story that leads up to it. Because the quality of the ending is really how well does it bring these elements together? How well does it pay off on the things that the story set up? So, like, I don't think we can think of examples that, like, of a movie that was, you know two shitty hours and then a really good 10 minutes, you know, (laughs) that made it all worth it. Yeah. Usually Um, it's quite the opposite because, and this is why I'm going to also argue that I think that endings are the hardest part of a story in most contexts. And I think of, think about how many movies, Greg, we've discussed where we're like, you know, uh, there's glimmers of problems, but the first two acts are okay. But yeesh, that third act is a mess, right? mm -hmm. I feel like we've said that about a number of films. Not all of them even good films. I feel like, you know, Suicide Squad was a good example of that. Batman vs Superman, once again, bad films. But, like, the badness emerges most prominently in the end because that's when you need it to actually come together and mean something and be a complete whole. And they're not because they're bad movies by bad people. But the the ending is when you as as the viewer, as the audience, you can step back and you can zoom out and you can say, all right, what was all this? What were we doing here? Um, It's the it's the kind of it's the key that kind of unlocks everything that that came before it. And sometimes things look really good until you zoom out and you're like, oh, no, it actually looks terrible. I only cleaned one corner of my bedroom. The rest is still a horrible mess. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think that 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 idea of, yeah, it's the mountaintop. It's the you know, now you can turn around and you can look and you can see the whole thing, the whole story. And now you can take its, you know, you can take its measure. And we just feel like and I think because we're trained with, you know, from stories, you know, even from you know, the, the structure of a story you learn as a, as a very young child is that the lesson is at the end, right? Right. When you get to the end and that's when, that's when it all becomes clear of what the story about the wolf was trying to tell you. Um, you know, the fable about the mouse that pulls the thorn out of the lion's paw doesn't work. Um, if, if you don't get to the end where he helps the lion and the lion's happy, you know, then it's just a story about a, about a mouse and a mean lion. Like, what is this? <laughs> just some stuff yeah. that happened. I like your mountain analogy because it if you look back behind you and you see a winding path that cuts in on itself and skips over things and you need to, you know, connect things without the path being laid out. I feel like that is where why endings are so important is because the way something ends well or doesn't end well can impact your enjoyment of the rest of the thing. Right. 
it's, even it's, if maybe it's, parts of that, that path were a lot of fun or interesting, if it doesn't actually pull together into something, you're going to feel worse about those individual pieces. Right. Because now you, by nature, the sequential nature of this stuff, now you are viewing the, um, you're viewing the events of the story and the, you know, the thematic elements, the stylistic elements, you're viewing them through the lens of the, of the ending. You're really walking to the end of the path and turning around and now you can only see it from that perspective. Um, so it needs to make sense of everything and it needs to be a view of the story that causes everything to lock into place and pay off and really mixing up the metaphors here. <laughs> I'm the master of that. So no, no, it's me. It's, it's a mountaintop and it's a lens and it's a frame. <laughs> it's all three. Uh, yeah. So I think that, do you want to talk about some generalities and then we can maybe get into some specifics about examples of the good, bad and the weird? Yeah. So I kind of have an idea of, you know, what kind of a mental model for a good ending. Um, and it's, I, I'm calling it the city of completeness. Um, you, you, the ending allows you to look at the, the whole work and judge how complete it is. And that completeness to me is all about setup and payoff and kind of having a full agreement between your setup and your payoff of all the different elements. So that means any of the big payoffs you have, they're all earned, right? You're paying off things that you you actually set up in the story um, and you don't have any setups that you never paid off. Um, so you've got a uh, setup and payoff agreement, but you also, I think, should have agreement between the various kind of big elements of the work. So the narrative, the theme, the style, they should all kind of work together and agree with each other and be complete. So the the style should match the themes and the the narrative elements like if you're going to have you know kind of a a kind of a gruff gritty joe abercrombie style of writing that should match the, the you know the narrative world that your story takes place in that is kind of rough around the edges and brutal um and it should also match the themes that you're trying to convey and you know, Joe Abercrombie, you know, goes uses a lot of themes of like um, morally gray characters and morally fraught situations. So here, your narrative setting, your thematic elements and your stylistic elements all kind of agree with each other and they all kind of work. <coughs> a counterexample would be um, where you have a real mis mismatch between theme and style. Um you know, where you might have, and, and I'm thinking back to Name of the Wind here, where you've got kind of a florid, um, kind of sumptuous prose almost that goes along with, and depending on what chapter you're reading, because it's all over the place thematically, but like themes of like guilt and deception and um, uh, remorse. And those don't really support each other. So it's incomplete in that way. And that's one of the elements of completeness that you can judge once the ending is in place. Um, so another example of where, you know, something can be stylistically incomplete is when the ending style differs drastically from the rest of the style. So I'm thinking about Game of Thrones here, where the style of the early season of the show was very kind of like it methodically paced, dense politics, uh, very character driven, 
all about shifting alliances and motivations. And then in the final two, two and a half seasons, it goes full Michael Bay, turn off your brain. We got dragons now. Um, uh stylistic inconsistency so the ending doesn't pay off on what the style set up um and i do and there's one other element that i want to bring in here this idea of completeness um and that's really only applies to video games but i think you might see it extended in some other more experimental forms of traditional narrative but that's mechanical completeness so where the mechanics of the game, um, the ending pays off on the mechanics of the game. So, like, and a video game ending is a complicated thing because the ending of a video game isn't necessarily just the little movie you watch after you beat the last boss. (laughs) I'm thinking of the ending of a video game as being the final kind of gameplay challenge, as well as whatever narrative elements are a part of that and come after that. But, like, it's mechanically complete when the stuff the game has been asking you to do while you've been playing it and asking you to get better at, that's what it's testing you at in the final challenge, right? Like if you had like, say a shooter game where the final boss was now all of a sudden I'm playing poker and I have to win a poker game. That's incomplete. Um, A video game ending really only gets that mechanical completeness when the final test is um, the same. is the final exam for this, the skills you've been building for the entire game. Um, and ideally the mechanics would also support the theme and the narrative of the video game, but that's getting ahead of myself. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that's something that I always found very frustrating in video games when those things are in alignment, the, the mechanical completeness. A, some examples of that is when like the game ends with basically just like a series of cutscenes mm-hmm. with no real like final play ending. Or even worse, potentially better, worse. Okay, like, like cutscenes strung together by like quick time events, mm-hmm. which are hit A to not die. Yep. Uh, <laughs> just for the non initiated. And those aren't fun. Um, so it's not really a gameplay then. Uh, right. And I think that, you know, another thing I found frustrating in games in that way was was when they like said the mechanics aren't in alignment. So, like, I'm playing in the game, but I'm playing the game in a completely different or almost mundane way compared to what I was doing the level before or the encounter before where, like you said, you want to try and use some of the things you learned. If it's a game with, you know, some sort of role-playing elements where you or, or like progression elements where you get stronger, you get new gadgets, you get new gear. Uh, I felt this way even playing. And I don't know if it was a bug, but in one of the final encounters in the Witcher three uh, in the main quest line, you fight a guy and I was not able to use any of my, potions or bombs or alchemical stuff and it's like well why the hell did i have that stuff then if i can't use it against the final boss right right and, and so when it, the game strips away what you the work you put in it feels real bad right because the and, and, and in the case of the witcher like the game is teaching you and rewarding you as you go to um prepare for your fights by using the right potions and the right weapons and the right mutagens right it's all about like kind of um, casing your opponent and, you know, implementing advantages before you even face them. So you're in the best position and that, so the final test should be that right. Rather than stripping away all this stuff and saying, oh, now it's just a, now it's just a, it's just an arcade style fight. Right. Right. It's, and that's a, that's a problem. Right. Um, now if there was 
some element of the gameplay and the story that was about teaching you not to use these things and just rely on your skills. Maybe it's a little more acceptable, but I didn't see any of that in the Witcher games I played. No. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that that's a really interesting point about mechanical completeness that I hadn't considered. So I agree with all your point. I think that, you know, you in movies and, and TV and, and all forms of media, they can check one or two of these boxes, but missing the third can sometimes be, you know, the Jenga blocks, right? You, you really want to try and hit all three to at least to some passing degree. You can maybe get by with two, but it's not going to be quite as good. I mean, we talked a lot in our Watchmen episode, you know, the final Watchmen episode, our, our overview about how, you know, we felt there was pretty good narrative completeness, but maybe some of the themes weren't fully completed. Yep. yep. And that's a detraction, right? Um, you know, stylistically, we were there. So we were, you're close, but you get that full, perfect, quote unquote, completeness when you complete and check all these boxes. Right. And I, I think a good shorthand for a good ending is is um, no one's asking for a sequel, right? Like mm. where it feels like you got all there was to get out of this. So I think like, you know, classic work of American literature, Moby Dick. Nobody's been asking for Moby Dick 2. There's been plenty of opportunity for somebody to try Moby Dick 2, but never happened. Or when... <laughs> um, when the sequel to Kill a Mocking to To Kill a Mockingbird came out, everybody was like, "We didn't wait. We didn't want this. What? What's going on here?" Um, Lord of the Rings, like nobody really is like, "Oh, but I want to see what happens next." It's just kind of like, no, it's it's good. It's done. I got all I needed from that story. Right? It there's nothing left to to hear or see or do or understand. Right? I would even argue like the Matrix, the first Matrix. You got to the end, you're like, cool, I get it. He's going to go be a superhero now. And I can imagine what that's like. But that's the end of his journey, right? The Neo's journey in the first Matrix movie is to go from, um, you know, corporate drone in the real world to uh, savior of humanity. And it's just about getting him to the savior point. And the movie's entirely complete to get you there. Does all of it perfectly. And you're like... There, it's good. I got it. I see where we ended up. We're done here. And they're like, we're going to make two more. And they're going to be bad. And I was like, okay, here's my money. Here's now I'm making time. another one and it'll probably be bad. Yeah. I'm like, guys, Keanu Reeves is, he's making good, like fighting gun movies without your help. They're, they're really good. It's <laughs> just whatever you do is going to look dumb now. Along those lines, I think that you brought up another really good point here in the notes about, you know, sort of like, this idea of payoff and set off, yeah, payoff and setup, not in that order, that, you know, the value of an ending is directly related to how much the rest of the story built towards it. Mm -hmm. And uh, you said that this is why sitcoms and long running series don't usually have satisfying endings. Yeah, because if you have the, you know, American television where you've got long running series, sitcoms are a good example, um, where they're open ended. The so in order to keep the series going, you kind of just have to have these kind of small setup and payoff, you know, within an episode. And then maybe you have some season long arcs. But, you know, at the end of the episode, things kind of need to be back where where they were when they started. And at the end of the season, they kind of need to be back where they were when it started, um, because otherwise you're going to mess with the dynamic of the show and then it's not going to be a profitable long running show anymore. So then you get to the ending and the ending can't really feel satisfying because it can only pay off so much. 
either you can pay off like some very, very long running kind of central conflicts, but then it just kind of feels like, oh, you just flipped the switch and now it's better. Um, or you can set some things up in the final season and then pay them off, but still you don't have that natural. The show is never building to anything. So the ending can't really pay off on that. So like 30 Rock, which I think had a decent ending, um, but basically it just said like, hey, let's check everybody's boxes. All the characters basically get what they've been wanting since the first episode, but we've always kept out of reach because that's the conflict. Liz Lemon can't balance her work life and her personal life. And that's always the source of tension in the show. And then finally we get to the end and, oh, she figured it out. Okay. You know. Jack Donaghy, um, you know, can't, you know, ha- has a similar problem where his ambition keeps keeping him from doing the things he really wants to do. And then at the end, he's like, ah, I'm quitting and getting on a boat. And you're like, OK, why now? <laughs> but, but, you know. Right. Um, and that's a big question of why now when it comes, especially for for comedies, for sitcoms, right? Like, yeah. why now? And that's why they're so hard to end, because on one hand, you can have situations where perhaps and, you know, most comedies are ensemble shows. And really, certain character stories should be done, right? And they move on. I think of two recent examples of that being one being It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. where I haven't watched this most recent season yet. But, you know, the one prior where, you know, at the end of the one prior to that, Dennis left the show. Pretty much, unquote. yeah. You know, kind of came back here and there, but then came back fully. And his absence was felt because these are ensemble shows right. built on the backs of these characters interactions similarly parks and recreation you know they kind of slowly lost some characters right you lost uh and 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 uh wow really doing good tonight (laughs) um rob lowe's character whose name i'm blanking on oh chris traeger chris traeger yeah so you lose Anne and chris traeger who to be fair weren't there in the beginning so you can sort of say okay they've got time but to me that absence was very much felt because there were such crucial parts of the cast so you, you kind of have a lose-lose situation. Either you kind of have characters fall off individually or even to use the office thing with Steve Carell's character. Um, you know, many would argue like, oh, the show wasn't good after that. I would argue the opposite personally from what I've seen. But I don't really like Steve Carell. So that's me. But you can try and write up people's storylines as you go. But then you're kind of left. You're kind of gutting your ensemble cast right. to the end. Or you have to check all the boxes at the end, like you said. And then it feels kind of like weird. Right. Uh, Parks and Rec ending, I think, is one of those that I'm still a little bit unsure of how I feel about. I feel like it's it was a fine season, but did it did it give me a sense of completeness? I'm not sure. Maybe a little bit. I, I think that I, I, I think that for a sitcom that was originally intended to be open ended, I think it's it's next to impossible to really stick the landing because there's no landing to stick. You know, right. you didn't have an ending in mind when you started. And that brings exactly. me to my biggest point about, you know, you're to reinforcing what you said about the value of an ending is how much the story built towards it. And this idea comes up a lot. You know, there was a, you know, a lot of people talk about you need to know the ending going into a story. Maybe not every single detail, but you need to know what your story is about yep. and what your themes are and then build towards those themes. This is an interesting, like, kind of storytellers constructive style we've talked about before and people have talked about at length is this sort of idea of the architect versus the gardener right and the best examples of this are back to sort of fantasy writers where uh, a good example of an architect is someone like brandon sanderson (laughs) he talks about you know how much he outlines how all his plotting that you know he has outlines within outlines within outlines that sort of go through and 
you know, build towards something that he's trying to build towards. People could argue there's executional issues there. Fine. Uh, but he juxtaposes that against someone like Martin, George R. R. Martin, who has described himself as a gardener where he's planted seeds, aka his characters and some of the plot points and themes, and that they're going to blossom and he's going to cultivate and get to the end of his story. I think that Rothfuss has also described himself this way. Well, guess what? <laughs> well, Rothfuss, I, I would say Rothfuss is much more of a gardener than Martin is. I think Martin probably started as an architect and has become a gardener. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons he's having such trouble finishing the series is because he let things get away from him and doesn't know how to get it back to where he wanted it to be. Um, I think that if you if you look at everything he's done in in that world, he has a clear point of view. And I think that the bones of Song of Ice and Fire are building towards an ending that should pay off on those themes. Yeah. It seems like he's really setting shit up. I think he's just having trouble threading the narrative there. Um, mm -hmm. And I also think he's lost interest, which I can't blame him. Um, right. Uh, but we've talked yeah, so about I him and his issues a lot. <laughs> Ad nauseum. So, yeah, so we won't stick around that. But these, you know, I will say one point is that, you know, to have a good ending, you need to have an ending. <laughs> uh, but so I, I think that's generally true. Um, I, I think that for the long running show that was never intended to have an ending. Well, I mean, it's you know, it's going to end, but you generally don't have one in mind. Right. Um, so I have a couple counter Well, a couple, yeah, a couple counter examples. One is um, BoJack Horseman, which I um, I need to give the final season another watch. But by all accounts, it is a very good ending to that show. But it's also you know known from creator interviews and such that the show was never totally closed ended. But the creator basically said to the bigwigs at Netflix, I know how I want to end this. So when we get to my last season, can you tell me that it's going to be my last season so I can use the whole season to get to my ending? Mm -hmm. um, which I think is, you know, what you want, because a lot of TV shows, they find out, you know, midway through production. But this is it, guys, which is why a lot of sitcom endings feel very rushed, because it's like, well, they just kind of did this. Um uh, so I think that does it well. The Good Place also, um, which just wrapped last week with, uh, I think, a very excellent ending, um, is a similar thing where when they started The Good Place, I think Mike Shore knew that like, well, this isn't going to go for 10 seasons. Is it going to go for three? Is it going to go for six? I don't know. But he was able to make it work because I think that even if there wasn't a planned ending, it's very clear that The Good Place is going somewhere. You know, this is a show that is working towards a conclusion of some sort. We know that this can't be just the gang's adventures in the afterlife forever. Um, but one, Ironically, I think it's the best place for it. But what's that? <laughs> Ironically, well, yeah. it's the best place for That's it. A good but point. Um, <laughs> um, but I do think um, Star Trek The Next Generation did an excellent job, despite being basically a completely open ended show. We're just going to make Star Trek until we can't anymore. Um, but the two-part finale, um, the best of both worlds, I think, or no, all good things is the, uh, is the finale, um, is in my mind, one of the best, um, because, and because it's Star Trek, so it can do timey-wimey stuff, um, they are able to kind of retcon some long builds 
and um, uh, mild spoilers for a very old show. Um, so the very first episode of Star Trek The Next Generation starts with um, it starts out feeling like a standard like Star Trek. We're going to investigate an anomaly on a planet um, thing, but then very quickly gets escalated to now um, a godlike entity called Q is now using the Enterprise um, essentially to uh, advocate for the continued existence of humanity in a courtroom. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's up to Jean-Luc Picard to uh, effectively, you know, make the legal, ar- not even the legal, like, but like the moral and ethical argument that humanity should continue to exist on this plane of reality at all. Um, and then the finale basically comes back to that with some timey-wimey nonsense. Um kind of setting up that like the entire show has been the trial Mm. and um and it concludes with it takes place over like three timelines and picard is like mentally time traveling between the three to solve like a space puzzle so it's very star trek um but also feels like a good like yes this this connects back to the the first episode and like you know kind of closes that chapter and the Q character has you know come and gone throughout the series like he's been kind of a recurring antagonist throughout the whole thing it's great classic character but um but also it ends with um it ends with a scene of just the the main cast just you know playing a game of cards together you know implying like yeah they're just going to keep going and doing star trek stuff but we're not going to like we the audience aren't going to be around for it you know, this was kind of their, their, you know, this was their big adventure and it capped off the series and we're going to watch movies. But, you know, um, so it doesn't necessarily have to tie up everything because we assume the characters are going to continue to have lives and everything's going to be much the same as it was, you know. Um, but still, we feel like we got a satisfying conclusion to these characters arcs and we got a glimpse because it's timey wimey. We got a glimpse of a possible future post show. You know, you you've got an old Picard working on his vineyard. You've got an you know a, a a older Riker who's an admiral now, and he's got a boss ass new Enterprise with a big plasma cannon on it. Um, <laughs> so you get a little bit of that like um, you know glimpse of the future. It, it, it's just really well done, um, and they did it without that like kind of um, well you know. Breaking Bad style, like this is going to be five or six seasons. I know where this all is headed. Um, You know, I'll figure out some of the middle stuff, but there is an ending here and I am working towards it, you know, Um, but they they pulled it off. And and some of that was some advantages of Star Trek, but I also think some of it was just, you know, good writing. Yeah, I think that the the dilemmas and the sort of pressures around television make for a lot of interesting stories surrounding endings, right? Like, you know, industry stories and sort of the good, the bad and the ugly and the weird, right? Like I think a lot about, uh, the story surrounding the ending of angel, um, Joss Whedon's, you know, Buffy spinoff mm-hmm. show, angel five seasons. Uh, you know, it, it's a, it's an example that I look to as, I mean, that last season is, and I was talking about this on our my Buffy and angel can catch up, but like, it's one of the best episodes of television that probably the best episode of television that Joss Whedon's ever made. It's a really good season. It leads up to a, like really encapsulates a lot of the shows, both shows really. And then once again, you know, because of television things, the story is that basically Jocelyn was an asshole and told UPN or whoever, like, give me an answer now. And they said, well, if we need an answer now, the answer is no. So they canceled it, despite the fact that this is one of their best shows and they probably would have kept it running for a while. But uh, so the ending is one of those like, you know, this is a good episode, but is it a good ending. 
this is a good season, but it's a good ending. No. And I think that the problems surrounding TV, like you said, like you can't always go in with a plan, a full plan. You know, I think that it's starting to happen more often, especially as people are focusing more on adaptations. And we talked about how the showrunner, the Richard says, I have seven seasons planned, which probably aligns with, you know, the books in some way. She's mapped out every arc and what she thinks is the appropriate timeline and time frame for each of those. Uh, obviously, more of that, the better. I think that we've all watched a show that we think probably could have ended a season or two earlier, right? For a variety of reasons. Uh, but I always think that's like an interesting, it's an interesting context for television because it's, it's very different from books or video games or movies, right? Yeah. Just because of sort of like the, the, the mechanics of it all. I mean, I think that television and books have similar challenges in that the temptation to just keep going can be very, very strong. Series of books, mm-hmm. I should say, not necessarily single, you know, the self-contained. But if you're writing a series, um, and I think this might be one of the things that got in Martin's way of like, what if I just kept going? And what if I just got indulgent and just spent a lot more time with these characters? Um, and then it gets away from you. And then maybe it drags on too long, you know, in the case of a lot of TV shows or in the case of George R. R. Martin, you end up uh, you end up basic, basically writing yourself into a lot of corners. <laughs> yeah. Um, Movies, I think, are lucky that they don't movie series franchises are lucky that they don't have that problem. But they do have because they are constrained a little bit by um, at some point the actors are going to get too old and or they're going to get tired of doing this. Like Harry Potter, there's a definite ticking clock on how many Harry Potter movies you can make, because at some point Harry graduates. Right. I mean, you run out of novels, but also you get to a point where it's like, well, once you know, are we going to do Harry Potter goes to college? What are we going to do here? So then they did some prequels that I think nobody liked. Um, Yeah, they're bad. And, you know, one of the reasons that I think that the Marvel movies kind of had to come to the end that they were coming to, even though that was planned, but I think that was planned knowing that at some point, um, you know, Robert Downey Jr. is not going to want to do this anymore. Or at some point, Chris Evans is just going to get, he's not going to be fun to watch as Captain America. He's going to be too old. Um, so there's a, there's an incentive to keep that concise and to say like, all right, we got a, we, we got an end date here, um, for these. Um, but TV, it's, it's a lot different because the expectations of like, yeah, no, these characters, we're, they're going to age on screen and we're going to watch it and it's going to be fine. And we're just going to keep going. Cause that's, you know, a lot of sitcom, it's about comfort and rhythm and, you know, uh, familiarity. Um, so yeah. Another, yeah. So I wanted, sorry, go ahead. Another example of a sitcom ending that I think managed to beat the odds um, because it was even apparently a surprise ending for the for the crew, which happens a lot in, you know, sitcoms. Basically, you find out at the very end of production that this is your last season. So a lot of times they kind of rush to wrap things up in the last episode. But the final episode of King of the Hill is actually very good, um, despite being a surprise ending. Um, it you've watched King of the Hill, right? I mean, I've watched a um- you know, as I watched TV in the 90s, you know, in the 2000s, like I saw I seen a bunch of episodes. I've, I've always thought like I've always heard such good things. I'm like, oh, I should watch it from the beginning and like get the whole thing. But, I've, you know, so I've not seen the ending, but I've seen enough of King of Hell and know what's okay. going on. So so one of the central tensions, conflicts in the show is between Hank and Bobby. Hank is a very old fashioned conservative um, and 90s conservative. So not a racist, um, <laughs> uh, you know, man's man toxic masculinity kind of guy, but in a gentle way, you know, he's not a monster. Um, and then Bobby, his son is, 
you know, like a theater kid and outgoing and goofy and unrestrained. And, you know, the, the, the catchphrase for the show for a long time was that boy ain't right. Um, and, you know, one of the central conflicts of the show is, is Hank and Bobby wanting to connect and have things in common, but never quite making it work. Um, and so the final episode of the show is Bobby gets involved in an extracurricular activity of uh, meat grading, which I, apparently is a thing especially in like Texas where, you know, mm-hmm. like the beef industry is a big thing where like he goes to competitions and like, you know, they ask him to like grade a side of beef, you know, and, and or find the flaw in this piece of meat. And Bobby turns out to be really good at it. And Hank being, you know, this, you know, kind of stereotypical Texan, like all of a sudden finds something that like now they have this thing, you know, it's it's competitive, which Hank likes. It's based around beef, which Hank likes. Um, but it's not like a big sport, so it's good for Bobby. And like they find this thing and it's just kind of an episode of King of the Hill where Bobby joins the meat team. But then in like the last like 30 seconds, you just see this kind of um, there's no dialogue. It's just kind of a little montage of all the characters on Rainy Street where, you know, the, the show takes place. They're all getting ready for a cookout in Hank's backyard. And there's a little kind of sentimental music and there's just these little kind of wordless moments between the characters, Um, uh, you know, and then Hank and Bobby have a little moment over like a a steak that's about to go on the grill. And that's it. That's the end of the show. But like and and the story is like they didn't you know, they they just they basically animated that last section because they'd already sent all the voice actors home, Um, (laughs) you know, and and they just kind of put it on. It's just a little kind of coda. Um, But the episode works because it's just a little bit of a resolution of one of the central conflicts of the show. Um, They're not solving everybody's problems, but it feels like an episode of King of the Hill. In that it, you know, it, it has the same pacing, the same structure, everything. But you feel like, oh, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the thing for Hank and Bobby. And they finally connected. And then you just have this little kind of little last moment with all the characters. in just kind of a life goes on kind of way, you know, just kind of a comforting feeling of like, even though I as a viewer, this is the last I'll see of my friends on Rainy Street. But they're going to continue to be happy and living the life that, you know, that they've always had lived. They're having a cookout in the backyard and, you know, um, and, and kind of like the Star Trek ending of like, yeah, things are going to be OK, you know, it, and, and it worked. It was it, it, it's perfect. Yeah, I mean, we talked we talked in the past. I don't think we've talked about much in the podcast, but uh, and this is something I, I want to talk about, too, is sort of like good endings that are then sort of overwritten by continuations. Mm. Right. Like a good example in the news that has come out today that, you know, Indiana Jones five is happening and it's going to be a continuation, not a reboot. You know, Harrison Ford is in the whole thing. I know, Greg, just relax. It's been it's been a rough week. Let's not let's not make it worse. I'd forgotten Uh, about this. So but I was thinking a lot about that today, my endings and thinking about things that need endings, don't need endings. And I'm like, well, Indiana Jones is kind of fun because it's like they're kind of self-contained adventures. But then again, The Last Crusade is a really good ending to the story right like and listen you know indiana jones 4 is not a good movie but it's it makes it's worse because the conclusion of even though it's not really like it's not like indiana jones relationship with his father is this thing that you're learning about over the course of three movies Mm -hmm. it fits so well with him and his personality that you've seen develop over three movies and sort of the the venture they go on throughout that movie makes that a very compelling you know quote-unquote ending Mm -hmm. right you think it's completely reasonable that Indiana Jones is probably going to go off and have more adventures, but we don't really need to see them. 
Right. Necessarily. I was thinking a lot about this and I, I can't say yet, but we talked a lot in the past, probably even pre-podcast about like the ending of Deadwood and how even though that show was canceled abruptly mm-hmm. without a plan in action, the ending of that show kind of works in its own way. It's like, well, life's going to keep going on in this shitty fucking town. Right. And I have not watched the movie yet, which I feel very remiss about because I'm probably one of those people who was just like, yes, movie, give it to me. And then like HBO finally did it. And I'm like, yeah, I'll get around to it. <laughs> Partially because I kind of want to rewatch the show before I do it. That's, yeah. You know, that's a commitment. But um, so I don't know how it, I mean, from what I heard it was fine, but like, did it need it? Did it not? That's, that's a good question. And I think that's a big question right now, which is another layer on this idea of endings, which is why I was thinking about it is in the age of a lot of sequels and reboots and, you know, kind of picking things back up, you know, what endings are we reimaginings, revisionings, what quote unquote endings are we going to overwrite that don't need it or ones that do need it a good ending, right? Like you said before that, you know, with Picard, you were looking forward to it because you think that even though TNG had a good ending, the ending that was spelled out in the movies was not a good. Well, yeah, well, it wasn't really send off of those characters. Is that if, um, you know, the, the finale of the show was the last we saw of Jean-Luc Picard, good ending. But then because we saw more of him in the movies um, and and those movies were really action oriented, not really character oriented. Um, you never really got an ending for Jean-Luc Picard. And that's what I wanted from the Picard series. And two episodes in, I'm not sure it's what I'm going to get. Oh, we'll keep going. But um yeah. I mean, I think that in terms of these like revivals and reboots, I think that Twin Peaks did a very good job of giving giving the show an ending. Um, a lot of people um, were not happy with the ending from the, the return, but uh, I, I don't know what they were expecting from Twin Peaks because it is an anti ending because that's it's fucking David Lynch, man. It's, it's what you're going to get like it is. I mean, within the narrative logic and thematic logic of Twin Peaks, it is absolutely complete. But I can understand for a lot of people who might remember Twin Peaks as more of like a weird paranormal romance show, how this would be uh, unsettling. But I think that worked because I think that that show never got a chance to be complete. Um, and, and and this ending really made it complete. It took an incomplete thing and completed it. But I think a lot of these revivals, um, basically, they're taking a complete thing and uncompleting it. <laughs> yeah, I asked, I kind of was prodding Shay a lot about this when it happened. But, you know, when they brought the, your favorite show to talk about, Greg, Gilmore Girls, and they brought the revival to Netflix, you know, the four episode revival. I kind of kept asking Shay because I had not watched it, but I was planning on watching it with her, you know, supportive supportive husband aka played eternal a lot of it but that's okay um you know i said like do you think it needs this like do you think the ending of the show was a good ending and is this gonna undo that or is this gonna you know be be necessary and you know i kind of got a mixed response like "Mm, i'm not sure like the ending kind of didn't feel great to gilmore girls so maybe they do you know i'm curious to see you know like you said things that and you can think of Watchmen, right? Another similar example where it's like, we thought it had a great ending, but we also got something that yeah. was equally or, or even maybe even a little like, you know, in a different way, like better, right? So it's hard to say without knowing what you're getting into, but it is an interesting dilemma in the world with so many things being like, we're going to bring back this and we're going to bring back that. And, right. you know, give it the, you know, you hear a lot of things, give it the ending it deserves, right? That's a very common like pitch for these. And uh, I just think it's an interesting equation trying to figure out 
Yeah, well, I think that I, I mean, I think as as a general rule of thumb, uh, don't take a complete thing and uncomplete it. Um, <laughs> I think that Watchmen is a miracle, and yeah. Whether we're talking about Watchmen the comic or uh, Watchmen the TV show, the general rule of thumb is you're not fucking Watchmen. Don't try. Um, right. It's kind of like when a band wants to sound like Queen. It's like, don't do don't try that, bro. That's not going to end well for you. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's the fact that they managed to pull it off should be regarded as a miracle, not as a model um, that should not have worked the way it did. Because, again, Watchmen is the Watchmen, the comic is entirely complete, you know, thematically, narratively, stylistically, everything about it is perfect and complete and self-contained by no laws of physics should the TV show have worked. Um, But it did. But again, that's a miracle and uh, not no one should try to do that for anything else. Exception, not the rule. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so I wanted to move through a couple what I call like ending tropes, most of them negative, but um, not all of them, um, and then maybe move into some some other good examples of good, bad, and, and I'm going to put mm-hmm. in the weird category. So obviously some tropes that are ones that I find kind of annoying. One is the, uh, you know, obviously a deus ex ending is always not fun, right? Unless, unless the show is about deus ex is, well. so I don't know. Which I'm not really sure I can think of an example of. One thing I'm thinking of is I, I'm really curious how, as you're aware, uh, another reason endings are on my mind. This is the last season of Supernatural. Uh, we are in the home stretch here. Only like however many more episodes for this back half of the season. Um, you know, s- light spoilers for a show that is nonsense. Uh, what do you do in the 15th season of a show about fighting monsters if you fight God? Actual God. Cool. Um and how do you fight God but deconstruct the narrative of your show since he's the one writing it? All right. So they're getting metal with it. Which is something the show, once it's a point of themes, has always sort of been a little funny. And Chuck, a.k.a. God, has shown up a number of times and, you know, messed with now, only now his sort of the – and the fun little sort of theological of just like, wait a second, God's an asshole, like kind of realization. Um, and then actually him coming out and being an asshole – uh, is where the show goes, including a little foray. This is a side tangent, but um, the most recent arc that just came back from the break was that basically God said, you know what? Fine. You guys aren't the heroes anymore. And then like left. And then hmm. they spend an episode or two basically just like being normal people and how much it sucks. Like Dean is lactose intolerant and Sam has a tooth, you know, Dean has a toothache and they keep getting flat tires and like, you know, their credit card gets declined and all these little tiny things that like huh. normal people have to deal with. Right. Now all of a sudden they're, they're not like, in a TV show anymore. Right. Yeah. And like the fights, you know, they can't they can't beat anyone in fights because they're not. Yeah, it's just it's very, very funny in that way. Um, Of course, they've allegedly found a way to, you know, get their mojo back. But um, my point is that this is a show that kind of has had some pretty bad Deus Ex moments where it's like, oh, they've we found this new artifact that can kill the bad guy. Yep. C- cool. And I'm just like, I hope. Like, I don't know if that's going to happen again. I don't know if it fits or doesn't fit when you're fighting God themselves. Uh, but I'm curious. Um, I couldn't think of any other, like, other examples top of my head of, like, a major Deus Ex ending in media. Probably some ones in some video games that are bad. But so I think that the Deus Ex Machina ending, um, it creates two potential problems. One is it, it's really a symptom of a lack of a connection between setup and payoff because basically what you have is you have a payoff with no setup 
right? The character discovers some new power that they didn't know they had before that lets them beat the the big bad guy or, oh, turns out there's a magic sword that we've never talked about up until right now that's going to help. Um, so, right. So, again, payoff with no setup. Um, and there are others where it's more of a literal deus ex machina um, where there's a, some kind of cosmological intervention that we didn't see coming, which I think is is more of a Again, it's kind of a setup payoff or, or, or a thematic uh, incompleteness because I'm thinking of Battlestar Galactica, where um, the um, uh, where we find out at the end that like Starbuck was an angel, um, and the show throughout its run had been really playing with the idea of if in the universe of Battlestar there is a godlike force. And the show would always kind of keep you guessing as to whether or not that and that was a major theme because a lot of it was the character's individual faith versus what was real and, you know, those sorts of things. And then the ending basically just says like, oh, yep, yep, there is a there is a divine element here. Okay, bye. That is an inconsistency with the theme, right? Like the point is not this is the point of this is not to be a mystery where we figure out if there is a God in the Battlestar universe, right? It's supposed to be more of an exploration of faith. That's the theme, not coming down with an answer. Um, so yeah, so you can, so, so the deus ex machina issue, it, it really, it's, it's just a problem of, you know, set up and pay off, but also can just involve, you know, a thematic, uh, inconsistency. Yeah. Um, it's also just lazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, another one that I dislike is sort of like what I'm going to call like the open ended cliffhanger ending, which is sort of like in some ways we talked about some examples, you know, where, you know, it's OK to have not everything tied up because it might fit the theme of the story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it kind of like life will go on in this certain way, but particularly in sort of particularly in like very focused, you know, action genre type things like the plot. You don't want to see your heroes not win. Or come to some conclusion, right? Mm-hmm. And the example I gave here is Angel because, spoilers for a very old show, which I guess we'll say now, like, we talk about some things, we're talking about endings, we're going to get into some spoiler territory here. An uh, hour we'll do and our 30 best. minutes into the recording, we're giving the spoiler yeah. warning. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, but anyway, the last bit of, the you know, we sort of end the, the way Angel ends is at the very end, the bad guys in, you know, capital B, capital G, they have unleashed all hell not actual hell but just like a ton of monsters and stuff on the team of angel's team so the last thing you see see is them facing overwhelming odds and they're gonna go fight the bad guys and it ends very famously with angel has a sword and you see a very bad cgi dragon in the background flying around behind all these you know extras and monkey suits and stuff and he says personally i want to slay the dragon because Angel's kind of supposed to be like a Paragon Knight kind of guy. And then it ends. In some ways, it's it's nice, but it's also like, well, seriously, right. they're just going to run and die. Like, you're, you know, you're setting something up <laughs> right? and not paying it off. Right. Uh, but it's very in a purposeful way, not in that this was the ending they had and then they got canceled. This was like, this is how they decided to end the show. And there's other examples of that. Like, even some of like the riding off into the sunset things are not always something i'm like super enthused about um just because it feels a little tropey but uh any examples on your end of that that you don't like i mean i think i know when it's done right you know again it's that oh there are some unresolved 
maybe plot questions, but when this kind of ending is done correctly, you realize that those plot questions aren't important, right? How does this battle end isn't really what it's about. It's more about that this character decided to fight in it, you know? Right. Um, We talked about the ending of Inception. We talked about the ending of Watchmen, where the point is that that you see the decision the character has made, and that's what we were building towards. Will they, you know, will in Inception, will Dom ever get over his obsession? Um, in, uh, in, in Watchmen, will Angela accept the mantle of a higher level of heroic responsibility? Um, and the endings answered those questions. Not, it's not as important if Dom's still in the dream. It's not important if she actually got powers. It's the decision she made. Um, those work. Twin Peaks, again, it's a non-ending. Like, there is no, um you know, like conclusion, like satisfying conclusion of the narrative threads. Um, In fact, things get extra weird in the final five minutes. But that is consistent with what the show has been trying to tell you is that the world is horrible and unknowable. And um, and the only redeeming quality is some is is people who make a concerted effort to be good and to do the right thing as uh typified by the dale cooper character and um that is the only the only light and truth it comes from individual people choosing to be good um in a horrible unknowable surreal nightmare world and that's what you get from the last season of twin peaks it's not about how does you know how does this Oh, is that really, was that really Lori or not? Like, no, that's not the fucking point, man. Um, but then like what you're describing with some of these where it seems like it's a cliffhanger that just never got its conclusion. Like, obviously that sucks. Yeah. Um, some other ones, the, I, mean, I put these all in the bucket of what I call stakes cop-outs, which is once you get set up and pay off, like setting things up, but not paying off on them. Uh, some examples of this are like, it was all a dream. Um, what's the most famous thing of that? Is that the Bob, the Bob Newhart show? Is that what that trope is? Well, actually, that's a little bit different. There was one soap opera, I think, that legendarily did it and did a reset. But the Bob Newhart one was actually even was was a little bit more clever because um, it ends with him waking up on the set of his previous sitcom as though the most recent sitcom was a dream within the first one. So they did something like this as a, as a joke for breaking bad, like a joke promo for breaking bad, which showed, um, uh, basically, you know, as a joke, the, Oh, the, the, the final scene of breaking bad was Brian Cranston waking up next to in the bed from Malcolm in the middle with the mom from Malcolm in the middle. Like I just had the worst dream. Um, (laughs) So that's what that was. I mean, I think the obviously the it was all a dream is is an incredible cop out. It just says to um, your audience that everything you watch didn't matter. Um, uh, the Saint Elsewhere finale did this, where um, it zoomed out from the hospital and it was in a snow globe, <laughs> uh, and they suggested that, um, and then you saw kind of in a Wizard of Oz kind of way where you realized that the characters from the show were characters in the in the in the life of this this boy um i think i think he was presented as autistic um you know he imagined the characters in his real life like his stepdad as like a doctor in this hospital mm-hmm. um and then there's the tommy westfall universe which um stipulates that all the shows that saint elsewhere crossed over with 
in the 80s and 90s are all also within this kid's head and thus all the shows that they crossed over with are in this kid's head and it's it's you can look it up it's a thing weird yeah uh the other ones i want to point out and these kind of go together i'm going to call the bait and switch or just wussing out in general uh this is what i call the harry potter syndrome Hmm. but i want to i want to show a a juxtaposition but i I want to be careful because i don't want to spoil it too much but one of the major themes of harry potter is that you know harry's destiny and harry's sort of like this what it means to be a hero and self-sacrifice right harry's mother sacrificed herself for harry protect him that's his whole shtick right like the boy that lived and i feel that you make an argument either way perhaps but i feel that harry living at the end of the book felt like a bait and switch to me and it's weird because there's a very similar through logic in Wheel of Time, right? Of like a messianic figure, you know, needing to die to save the world kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But one handles it really well and one handles it really poorly. One handles it in a clever plot wise, but also like, ah, it has greater meaning, right? It has this like, and a little bit of an open-ended way, but in a very like, you know, a very kind of poetic fashion where Harry Potter, when Harry quote unquote dies in his fight with Voldemort, Voldemort, and then they go to that weird fucking white place with the Voldemort baby and all that stuff. Like, and it just comes back. It's like, yeah, I'm fine. It's like, what? Like <laughs> what? You know, it's just a plot wise. just like, why? There's no plot completeness there. And the theme is like, so what is that? What did that whole sequence mean? And it didn't fit stylistically because we've never done that weird stuff in Harry Potter before. It's always been kind of a plotty plot heavy plot machination character you know character driven but sequence of events right and to go off into this like weird other place with Voldemort as a baby and Dumbledore is there and whatever else goes down I still don't fully understand it which maybe it's my own thing but I just feel like you can set up it's hard because you don't want to say like oh well they said the prophecy is this so he has to die that's what to do but doing it poorly (laughs) feels like a bait and switch to me where you're setting up a lot of expectations and then poorly pulling them out and saying you know what no never mind we're not gonna do that because i don't quite have the balls to kill my main character in this book well yeah and, if, and that's just wussing out in general part right and it's again it's set up and pay off if you're setting up something about personal sacrifice then your character actually needs to sacrifice something to pay it off that doesn't mean they have to die right like what did harry sacrifice in that moment right Nothing. um but you know if you look at um so for example um lord of the rings you know um, Frodo loses a finger and loses some part of his soul or spirit spirit as a result and basically goes off into their metaphorical death boat by sailing away on a boat. You know, <laughs> um, he loses something in the process of all this because the theme of Lord of the Rings is um, giving of yourself to the greater good. So he had to give of himself in order for it to be complete. So if you're going to have self-sacrifice as a, you know, as a theme, you got to make the sacrifice. And, 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 you know, maybe it's possible if you're telling the story really well and it's more about a character's growth. And really the point is that they were willing to make the sacrifice and that's enough. You know, maybe that's okay, but if we're talking about, you know, a family movie with wizards, I don't think you can be that subtle. Yeah, I agree. Um, The last one I had was Universe Resets, which is similar to It Was All a Dream. But I think that, you know, you get an example of this in a good example of this, which is, I think, is Endgame. Hmm. It's not really a universe reset, 
but they did undo the bad stuff that happened in the you know well they dark part did and they didn't right which i think is why it's a good example because they they undid it but it didn't erase it right the world is still changed yeah, Everyone's still back, but the world has changed. And bringing people back will have consequences for them and their relationships and the people who didn't get snapped, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of a reset, but not um, not a full time travel bullshit re- reset, which is really the, you know, um, yeah, it was all a dream. Nothing mattered. We're, we're back to square one. Right. Um, a bad example of this is most recently, um, as a couple weeks ago, Arrow is now done officially, and they sort of coincided the end of Arrow with the Crisis on Infinite Earths sort of storyline, which I did end up watching all five episodes. Uh, I would not recommend. <laughs> um, however, spoiler alert, um, if you didn't, if you can avoid the internet for two seconds and not see every, you know, headline about it. But in that, in that storyline, Oliver Queen dies and becomes the Spectre. Sure. And then fights the anti-monitor in a Dragon Ball Z fight. Oh. <laughs> kind of. And then basically all the other heroes kind of care bear stare a new universe into existence through Oliver's guidance. Sure. Uh, which effectively, A, we talked about merged all their Earths into one, Earth Prime. So now these shows can all hang out together. Uh, but weirdly enough, in the last episode of Arrow, which took place after the sort of miniseries, um, which is kind of like a coda, you know, epilogue for the thing. They have Oliver's funeral or whatever. As part of he, him doing that, he basically brought back everybody who died along the way in his world, in like in his kind of group of friends, like his mother, his stepdad, his best friend, like all these people. And it's just like, OK, like I get it. But why? You know, and it just seems like these kind of things that uh, that don't that aren't necessary. Right. Well, and I mean, this is part of. You know, kind of the and and to get a little Joseph Campbell hero's journey of it, like one of the things we're looking for in a story is to see a character. A character has to come out the other side of it changed in some way. Right. They need to either come back diminished because of sacrifices they made or they they come back from the journey um, stronger because of the development they've had. Right. Like. They need to return changed at the end of the story. Um, and if you have a situation where they do something that reduces or, or undoes everything they've lost over the course of the series, well, now they're not really changed, are they? They're just kind right. of the same dude they were at the start because right. they've got, you know, everything's back to normal. So it 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 just it it undoes a key element of a story's ending, which is to be able to look upon your your characters and see how the events have changed them. Right. And you know, in this case, he's dead, but still he he but he undid the change that happened to the people around him in a lot of ways. Right. And you know, there's a way to do it that you can make it make sense. I think. Um, example: the one character his daughter had been effectively erased from existence by some other previous time shenanigan, time multiverse shenanigans. Thanks a lot, Barry Allen. Uh, in actually a pretty clever way where just Barry Allen did a bunch of shit in the flash. And then over an arrow, all of a sudden you realize like, Oh shit, his daughter just doesn't even exist anymore. She's huh. pretty brutal. So like he brought her back. It's like, well, that's nice. Like he remembered that was a thing. So, but like, I don't know. It just was like, cliche like well we better about get all these characters on screen once more to show them you know around the funeral pot you know the the gravestone just like 
tropey and unnecessary. Yeah. But great. With our last bit here, do you want to go through some some good and bad examples of of endings that you like? Some of your favorite endings? Yeah, I mean we've 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 touched on a couple, but um, we talked a lot about a lot of bad ones. But we did. Um, I think one of uh, so to talk about a video game. Um, I've expressed on the podcast before my undying love for Metal Gear Solid 3, um, the best Metal Gear. Um, but this has an ending that I think really works um, in, uh, it, you know, it, it, it's complete in all the ways that an ending should be. Um, it's narratively complete, thematically complete, stylistically complete, and, and in a video game context, mechanically complete. And this is a great example of how video games can use their mechanics to communicate their themes. So, um, you know a little bit about the Metal Gear Solid games, right? I watched Donkey's video oh, about them, but I can't did. say that that like provided any clarity. Okay. There's so, there's robots and sneaky guys with patches that are maybe clones or something. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, so yes. So anyway, <laughs> um, so the Metal Gear game, Metal Gear games are uh, stealth games, meaning that you want to you you want to play them in such a way that you're avoiding conflict with enemies as much as possible because um, you d- you don't want to get into fights because um, you generally won't last long, especially if the enemies, you know, catch on to you and start to swarm you. You're, you're in trouble. You're just a guy and there's like and they're an army with guns. Um, so that's a central mechanic. Um, so you kind of avoid combat and when you get into combat, you want to end it as quickly as possible because you don't want the guard you're fighting to summon other guards because that's just going to make things worse. Um, so that's the central mechanics. Um, and Metal Gear 3 introduced this kind of hand to hand combat system called CQC, close quarters combat. So, you know, whereas in previous games, your kind of melee options where you could just mash on circle button and you'd punch 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 kick and that would knock the guy out this allowed you to kind of grapple a little bit and you're wrestling and you're putting them in a headlock and you're disarming them and you know so that's a big skill you develop throughout the game um and um there's also the storyline where you a big part of your mission is to um track down and neutralize your old um mentor and one time uh, lover, the boss, because that's the way people are named here. Um, but because she's defected to the Soviet Union um, at, and brought a nuke with her. And so you've got to go take her out. Um, and you're the only one who can do it because, you know, she's the world's greatest soldier. And But she trained you. So if anybody can do it, it's going to be you. So um, as it goes on, you know, as you kind of reach towards the conclusion where you're, you're going to have your big showdown with her, you realize that... Um, she actually defected on the orders of the U.S. government because it was part of a plot to help cover for how they lost this nuke. And basically she's like, I, you know, because I'm a good soldier, I, you know, I gave up my entire reputation, you know, my place in the history books for my country, you know, to do this and become the villain in the history books. Um, but in order for all this to work, you have to kill me, <laughs> like, because that's the story that the world needs for this world saving political thing to happen. So you have a fight with her. Um, and, um, it's a really good fight from a video game perspective. You're using that CQC and, um, 
And it's the first time in the game where you're fighting another character who fights like you, like she's sneaking around and, you know, you're losing sight of her in this field of flowers, you know, and she's wearing this white suit and it's all these white flowers and she ducks into the undergrowth and you can't see her. And you realize like, oh, shit, this is how all the guys I've been killing through the game felt (laughs) when I would just like sneak, you know, you know, punch them and then disappear. Um so you're fighting her um, and, you know, it, it's kind of visually beautiful, um, but it's also kind of gut wrenching because like you're like, I like this person <laughs> like as a player and as the, you know, the character snake. Um, um, and you're you're getting that theme because the game has also been kind of um, literally confronting you with the ghosts of the various soldiers you kill um as you go through it because you're supposed to feel guilty and snake the main character is starting to feel guilty for the violence he's doing and you know all just for the political ends of the united states government and blah 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 so the 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 boss fight ends uh you 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 defeat the boss um and there's a little cutscene, and the cutscene pulls back and you're back in gameplay mode and you're standing over her, you know, pointing a gun at her, you know, and basically you've had the conversation where she's like, you've got to kill me or the plan doesn't work. Um, and the only thing you can do at this point in the game, even though it's come back to like a player control moment, the only thing you can do is press square to shoot your mentor and uh, and and former lover in the face. Nothing else. You can't move. You can't pause. You can't walk away. But you as the player have to press the button. Um, and it's fucking gut wrenching. And then after you do it, all the white flowers uh, turn red um, because symbolism. But um, but it, it it's but you don't want to. But it's the only way to move the game forward, um, you know, narratively and just in terms of like, you know, uh, I, I, I want I want to get to the next part. I want to see the ending. Um so it's 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 challenging, you know, as a player, because you, you're, you're invested in these characters. You don't want to do this to the boss. And you also don't want to, like, make Snake do it because you're like, oh, I like that guy. This is going to be really scarring for him having to murder this woman. Um, but also it it resonates with the theme that the um, that the game has been building up towards about how these soldiers are not. How in control of their actions are they? Because now for the first time in the game, this game that it's been all about, you can approach things different ways and you can sneak in this way or maybe you can go in that way. And, you know, you can do, you know, you got all these options and all of a sudden the game has funneled you towards there is only one option left. It is murder and you don't want to do it. Um, and it's all about, you know, and the game has been asking these questions about how much free will does a soldier have? And is that a good thing? Um, and it's fucking genius. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, it's incredibly powerful because it even uses the mechanics of the game in terms of like the only the only option left to you is to press the fire button, um, you know, to underscore the themes and the narrative. It's transcendent. So that's a good example. That, yeah, that's that's an awesome example. Um, you explained it much more compellingly than, than Dunky did. I'll say that. Dunky, Dunky gets it. <laughs> <laughs> look, he made a very um, good video. Donkey gets it. Um, yeah. Look, that video does a very good job of pointing out how absurd and convoluted the Metal Gear story is. But I can tell by watching it that only somebody who really loves Metal Gear <laughs> yeah, would be totally. able to talk about it in that level of detail. <laughs> of course. 
Uh, one of my examples of, you know, I, I talked a little briefly, like I said, back in my day, but I talked about Angel a little bit about how it's, you know, not the best ending despite a really good last season. Um, Buffy's sort of the opposite where a lot of people don't love the last season, but I think the ending is, and the more I think about it in the context we're talking about, I really like the ending of Buffy. And I think that it does a really good job of, so basically, you know, Buffy is this chosen one, a slayer, and one of the main themes of the show is that she's always trying to, you know, not like, not even so much in like sort of like, I'm trying to balance teenage life and being this, being this, you know, the slayer, but more that like, this is a shitty life because it only ends one way. You die fighting. And then the next slayer is chosen. And that's just how it goes. And there's really no end to the cycle. And because of that, she has to sacrifice all these relationships and her loved ones get in the way and all these sort of things. And that's a major from season one, that's a major component of, of the show, as well as another theme of the show is that, you know, on the other hand, is that the ensemble cast and her friends all have their own arcs in this context as well. You know, Willow goes uh, from her exploration from, you know, in sort of this reality of realizing that she's a witch, she has power that mirrors her realization that she's a lesbian and comes out in both those ways and then struggles in both those areas, uh, even becoming sort of evil for a little while and then coming back. Uh, you also have characters like the character of Spike, who's gone from a villain to a hero, but questions their ability to, you know, choose. There's a lot of choice involved, right? Determining your path, prophecy, free will, these things. And while the CGI at least something to be desired, there is the final season is based around this person called the first, not person, this entity called the first evil. And they're sort of formless. They just appear in like a metaphysical form usually as other characters on the show to try and mess with people and, you know, drive people to do evil acts. And that's sort of the the final thing. And, and their goal is to use these, they call them like uber vamps or mega vamps or like souped up vampires. Silly. I know. But the nice mirror, because this is called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Sure. Should be vampires. They're more animalistic and, and monstrous than like, you know, your typical vampires. And it all focuses around basically only, only seeing an army of them on the world to you know, do evil things. But the show ends with, uh, at the end of it, all the team groups up to fight. They have a good plan. Willow re-embraces her magic using a, at one point earlier in the season, Buffy finds this like mythical slayer weapon. And they sort of kind of play with the MacGuffin Deus Ex thing where you think, oh, this is how she's going to beat him, right? You know, it's going to make her so powerful that she can do it. But and they use it and she does it, uses it effectively, helps her for a little bit, but it's one weapon's not going to stop this army. So Willow uses her magic, re, you know, kind of reintegrates it back into her life after being away from it for a long time um, to uh, unlock all the slayer, potential slayers. So now there's an army of slayers and now Buffy is also kind of free because she's not the only one. Hmm. And along with that, there's other character arcs like Spike sacrificing himself to save the group and, you know, kind of fulfilling his hero's journey as well as also destroying the entire town <laughs> as sort of a metaphor for, you know, sometimes you just got to leave uh, and, you know, leave the, the bounds of your former life mm -hmm. and, and move on. And uh, I, I just think it, it like thematically, it's very good. Stylistically, it's there and it mirrors the first season in a kind of interesting way. You also get Nathan Fillion as a weird priest, hmm. uh, which is always fun. But the more I think about it, even though the, the as I said, people sometimes the seven seasons got some slow points and things, but I think that it the ending itself is is ties it all together very well and, and meets our criteria for completeness. Sounds that way. I also 
I also wanted to call out another one I really like, which is not quite as dramatic, but uh, you never watched the show Spartacus, right? Uh, no. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a problematic show across the board in a lot of ways, I'm sure. Uh, probably even more than I imagined because I watched it years ago. Um, so it's, it's very much a, you know, it was made star. It was made hot on the heels of 300, right? Correct. And it's very probably much feels aged that way. just as well <laughs> as 300 yeah, did. Probably. There's a lot of a lot of gratuitous sex and violence, as most, you know, stars and Showtime shows were wont to do <clears> in <throat> that era of, you know, 10 plus years ago or whatever. However, um, I always find this one interesting because it is a show that you know the ending. The ending of Spartacus is that the slave rebellion is put down and everybody's killed. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that was an interesting place to start a story because you know your ending and the ending's not great. Kind of similar in that a lot of Shakespeare plays end that way as well. But up until I watched Breaking Bad, this is one of my favorite endings to a TV show because even though you know exactly what's going to happen, there's no surprises. The execution of, well, that's a poor word to use <laughs> considering most of the people were executed via crucifixion, but uh, each character that you've come to sort of really recognize and care about is the way they exit the show, which the show is all about fighting and violence and living that life because they're all gladiators, right? Mm-hmm. You know, is very personal to them. Sometimes in a way that they go out the way they want to go, other times going out the way that they would hate to go, but in a way that's reflective of like their character. So the characters that want to go down fighting in a blaze of glory don't, and the ones that probably don't want to do that, do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Do. So I, I always found that it was very, uh, it's compelling and, and also just like a well put together last couple episodes, um, just from like a time and place of scale and these big armies and battles and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, you're getting you're getting payoff to the characters, right? Right. Which is, you know, which is, you know, sometimes the best you can get with, you know, <laughs> something with a foregone conclusion like that. And honestly, I think that when we for the most part, when we're watching stuff, that's the most satisfying thing is payoff for the characters. Um, I feel like if if all you're getting from it is payoff for the plot machinations, it's probably not as good of a story. Right. You know, maybe, you know, if, if it's a if it's a if it's a mystery or an action movie, maybe you can get away with that where it's really just more about resolving the plot points. Um, and the characters might just be fun, wacky people to hang out with while you do this thing. Maybe. But generally what we want is just some completeness for the characters. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that you want to feel, you know, cause even at the, like I said, you said action movies or, or plot heavy movies, even in those, you, you know, it makes for a much better story for that completeness. You, you want to get, and I think the characters are part of the, can, I think the nice thing about the character point is that it sort of straddles both the narrative and the thematic right. completeness, right? You can't really like characters need to act in a way that are consistent, that lines up and executes the plot and story mechanics correctly. But oftentimes the themes are built through the characters and their interactions, relationships, actions, etc. I mean, I've, I've been thinking a lot about, I always think about, I know you're going to, you're going to be like, oh, fucking shit. But I think about sort of like the ending of, if you count Firefly and Serenity as one mm-hmm. whole, thinking about what are the themes of that show? And especially in sort of like knowing Joss Whedon's general, very liberal oriented politics, but seeing a lot of shades of like, mm, this is a lot of like lost cause civil war mm. kind of mm-hmm. like things. But I've come to look at it now a little bit in a different way, which he's pulling upon that because it's kind of tropey in a stylistic choice of like, you know, obviously he's removed all the slavery out of it. Um, but I think it's become a lot more about sort of similar to Buffy where it comes to like 
the end of Serenity when the realization that there's been this massive cover up of the government trying to uh, experiment on the populace to make them complacent and to make them um, nonviolent, mm-hmm. these sort of things. And that decision to sort of not fall into the not fall for the greater good argument, because that they make that argument very much in the movie that like and it's been throughout the show that like, well, the alliance is doing a good thing for most people. Right. It's 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 bringing prosperity. It's bringing wealth. Yeah. Those people on the edges there, you know, are still find their way. But that's because they fought a war and they lost. And in this case, you know, sort of staring that, well, if we all just stay in our place and go through the system, it'll all work out in the end and say, no, sometimes you need to buck the system and reveal the bad stuff and work through the bad stuff, even though it's painful and, you know, can cause a lot of conflict in the Mm -hmm. interim, which is not, you know, not a new idea by any means, but increasingly more interesting, I think, if you view it from a different perspective. Yeah. I just know you want to talk about Firefly so much, don't you? Uh... (laughs) <laughs> I have very little to say about Firefly. I know you. Uh, um, yeah, so anything else on your end? I mean, I could talk about how how um, just just use Rise of Skywalker as a as a total model for for bad endings, but we've talked about that a lot. Um, so I'm, I'm going to leave that where it is. <laughs> yeah, I think we we beat that one. We beat that dead horse with a dead horse um, in our two plus hour review. Yeah. <laughs> Good God. Uh, um, Yeah, but, you know, sometimes endings are planned out and you know how you want to get to them. And sometimes you just kind of run out of notes about endings and you just kind of have to end your podcast. Oh, yeah, you're right. (laughs) Sometimes sometimes you just run out of material. Yes, Uh, you do. And then you just it's like, uh, you know, and you just kind of you just kind of let it peter out, which, you know, we haven't talked about music at all in terms of endings. But really, the worst kind of ending to a song is a fade out because it just means you didn't really know what to do at the end of this. So you just turned the volume down, a.k.a. the 80s. So we're just going to fade out of this podcast because I don't know how to end it. Good night. Good night.